Hello, my name is Grant, and I'm lead pastor at New Song Church, and it is once again a joy and a privilege to be able to join you wherever you are that you have invited us into your life uh, on this day. I'm so grateful for all that's happening right now. I am praying with expectation about how things are going to be moving along in the next weeks and months, because God is always active. He's always inviting us into opportunities, and we've seen a lot of that. And I'm excited about the future. Uh, We're in the early days of a journey through the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we've decided in this season to focus on the Gospel written by someone called Mark. And we've had a very clear goal in doing so, and it's that we want to discover the identity, the character, the shape, the heights, depths, contours, the meaning, the quality, and the actual experience of this one that we call Jesus. We want to discover all that we can about him. We think this is super important right now. So I hope that you come to this and have been coming to this and will come to these experiences, these times together with curiosity about Jesus. And even, and actually, especially if you have been a Christian for a long time, because sometimes through habituation, Uh, we can become uh, somewhat confused perhaps or assume that we really know who Christ is and maybe we're missing the mark there. He is a person who lived ages before any of us were born and yet whose life, if we will engage with it, will transform our fundamental humanity in profound ways. We don't want to simply get to know more about Jesus but to actually get to know Jesus, the person, in a relationship right here, right now, just as we are are because he is the one who told us that if if we will ask and seek and knock, he will open the door and we will receive and we will find. And I trust this process, this bringing of the word of God, because I believe in it, because I have experienced it. And many have experienced a profound connection with God through Jesus and have found themselves changed in the process. You know, last week we, we looked at these stories that we call the controversy stories and the structure that Mark uses, it's very clear that he uses a particular pattern in the stories that he has collected together in this, uh, in this little part of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark. <laughs> um, Mark sets the scene, first of all. He gives us an idea of where this is taking place and who might be present. Secondly, there's always, there's a controversy that happens. Something happens to offend people. Uh, We don't know much about that, do we? That doesn't happen very often these days. But there's an offense, uh, some controversy because of the behavior of Jesus or his disciples. And then, therefore, a question is is asked of of Jesus and his friends. And Jesus answers. In each of these stories, Jesus gives some kind of answer. But it's not typically straightforward. uh, But it is meant to teach, actually to draw people in to to an understanding about the kingdom of God and the central role that Jesus has in it. Uh, and that his hearers both then and now really need to understand. So this week we have two stories in one, and we're going to take them together since they create uh, the arc of one specific point that Jesus wants to make. And it's actually the conclusion of these controversy stories. And what a conclusion. At the end of this passage, we hear that the religious leaders make a firm decision that they must kill Jesus. Jesus must die This is the conclusion that they come to. What happened to cause these men, these devout, pious men of Israel to come to such a serious conclusion? And what does this teach us about who Jesus was, what he was doing, and who he indeed is? 
and what he is for all of creation. And where do we see our own lives reflected in this portion of the living word of God that meets us right where we are and is a means of God to communicate with us right directly to us. So let's uh, read this text. You can follow along the Bible tab if you're joining us at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning uh, or, you, or use your Bible, whatever would you prefer here. But here's what Mark writes. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The religious leaders seem to have moved from sort of a casual engagement uh, with Jesus and his friends. You know, they've, they, they were kind of a blip on the radar to a determined and a purposeful one. He's, uh, Jesus is most definitely in their sights and it seems that a group of them are apparently stalking Jesus and his followers like some first century paparazzi or perhaps more like the secret police. Not really surprising since these men were sort of self-appointed governors of, what, uh, of community behavior and Jesus his growing influence and his behavior must be monitored in order to protect their dearly cherished ideals, the ideals of their organization. So this controversy here begins quite surprisingly with the fact that Jesus' disciples were obviously a bit peckish, a bit hungry, and they're walking through the fields on their way to wherever they're going. And as they walk along, they're picking heads of, of grain from a field nearby. And, and Matthew and Luke tell us actually they were, they were rubbing them in their hands and they were eating the grains. I remember doing the same thing as a child growing up in Scotland. Uh, it was a great big farming community around us. And there was fields of wheat for bread and, and fields of barley for porridge and for whiskey. Um, but we'd walk through and we'd, we'd grab those things and, and get a little snack. No big deal, right? No big deal. It's not a big deal, surely. Well, not so fast. In the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus' disciples are exposed as lawbreakers in doing this simple thing. At that time, the Sabbath was a non-negotiable in life. Religious laws governed every aspect of life in those times. And the Sabbath was the most important law of them all. 
There were three central aspects of life. There was the temple. There was the place where people would go uh, to, to meet with God, and it was a central part of their, of their whole lives in Jerusalem there. There was the Torah, which was the, the scriptures that they would look to, and then there was the Sabbath, these three important issues. And the Sabbath was there uh, from the beginning. It, it comes initially from the creation, the story of creation, of these six days of creation. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And the Sabbath day was given explicitly through Moses to the people after their release from slavery in Egypt and they were in the desert. And here's what it says in Exodus chapter 31. God says to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So initially it's a sign. So what does a sign mean? Well, it's a signifier or a constant reminder of something. And so what, is, what, what kind of sign is it? What is the meaning of this Sabbath? Uh, that same passage in Exodus goes on. Say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So there's two aspects here to know that God is the sovereign Lord over all. He is the highest authority. And secondly, that they are called to understand their relationship with God, that he is the Lord and they are set apart from all the nations as his chosen people whose lives will revolve completely around this relationship with God. And there were serious penalties for breaking the Sabbath, literally death. There was the ability to make a sacrifice for unintentional, but someone who would purposely be a lawbreaker against it uh, would face some really serious consequences. So from that time until Jesus' time, there was this immense amount of work done adding and, and modifying these commands till we had this great immense body of writing governing every aspect of life and how the Sabbath connected with that on that day. And some of these kind of sound ridiculous to our ears, such was the extent that they went to try and figure out how to live in, within the confines of this, such as a question was asked, can an egg laid by a chicken on the Sabbath be eaten? You know, the, people would spend time pondering these things. There was a group called the Essenes. They were a small group. Actually, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we think, were written by these people, those amazing uh, uh, um, old uh, papyrus scriptures and things that were found. It, they were a small sect uh, within the Jewish community, and they apparently would not even be allowed to relieve themselves through the Sabbath. This was a community of cross-legged people on the Sabbath. But it, it, we can kind of laugh, but it's very, very serious. Uh, we have to remember that for these people, the temple, the Torah, but the Sabbath was absolutely central of their understanding both of their identity and that had been questioned so many times by all the invaders that had come in and there was this fiercely guarded national identity but secondly, of the hope that they had in God. The hope that they had. It was a constant reminder of the rest that they hoped and believed would be theirs when God's kingdom finally came to them. And actually, they believed that their adherence to this law would possibly and likely be the means by which that would actually happen. Their observance, their strict observance of this may bring in, usher in the kingdom, the rescue that they longed for. As we heard last, last week about them fasting in expectation and hope of this coming king. It was written actually in their writings that if Israel, of all of Israel, would keep only two full Sabbaths as commanded, redemption would come to the nation. This was serious. 
So widespread failure of this to keep the Sabbath would be considered an impediment to the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to the nation of Israel. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you've got siblings and your parent or someone tells you, hey, you're going to get a wonderful treat or some special thing, ice cream or something, if you'll just be quiet for 10 minutes. And there's always that one sibling. Uh, your annoying little brother or sister ruins it for everybody. And you're, you're, they're going to feel your wrath. So these people, though, have been waiting for God to bless them for over 400 years. So for a spiritual leader like Jesus or a supposed spiritual leader and they've got their doubts, to encourage or even permit or, uh, their, their followers to break the Sabbath is supremely scandalous. This is a terrible thing to happen. So how were Jesus' disciples falling foul of the Sabbath laws in the eyes of these Pharisees? Well, for starters, perhaps it's because they were walking. There were strict rules that governed how far you could walk on a Sabbath day. And it was about one kilometer, people say. There's some debate about that, but about one kilometer. It seems ironic if that's the case, though, that the Pharisees were in the same place and likely would have also walked that distance. So perhaps it's not really about the walking part, but it's most definitely about the picking of the heads of grain. Because in some way, this is breaking the, the Sabbath laws. I actually have some grain here. And so these disciples were, were here and they were grabbing heads of corn, uh, grain as they went by and they were doing this thing which is kind of rubbing. I'm sure you've all done this at times and getting down, getting all the chaff off and breaking it down till you get this little piece. And then they were just kind of popping it in their mouth. It's delicious. Uh, actually, this is not so fresh because this is from the shelves of Hobby Lobby. So though it's sanctified by, by being from Hobby Lobby, it is not from the sun-drenched slopes of the Mediterranean and thus delicious. It's more for decoration than consumption, but, but this, this sometimes to, to, to take something that's in the Bible and actually experience it yourself, bring some understanding. This is what they were doing, seeking out these little bits of nutrition, you know, We've been told, Mark's told us they were so busy and he's going to tell us they're so busy they couldn't even stop enough time to eat. So they're grabbing a little bite on the go, like, you know, first century fast food. Um, but it seems like such a tiny thing. The disciples are doing this little, almost pretty unself, probably unselfconscious act of just picking it up because they're hungry. Well, the Pharisees are quick to point this out with great concern. And, and it's important to notice, how do they characterize this thing that the disciples are doing? What they say is this, they say, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? They're calling them lawbreakers. Actually, according to the law, the Old Testament law, what they were doing was actually perfectly within their rights under the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. So you're not to go out there harvesting copious amounts of grain, but it's okay to take a little bit, a few kernels. Um, but these people apparently are not interested in the facts. They're actively looking for any excuse to accuse Jesus and expose him as the false teacher and the threat that they believe him to be. So what does Jesus do? Well, in response, he reminds them of a story in their own scriptures 
of someone whom they revered highly, of King David, and a time when he was running from King Saul and he was fearing for his life and he had a very small gathering of friends at that time and he went to the priest at the time, not in the temple, it was prior to the temple, but in the tabernacle and there was the, the bread that was consecrated and once that had happened, only the priests were allowed, according to the law, to eat of this bread. So David is exposed in some way as a lawbreaker because he asks for this bread to sustain him and his friends and the priest indeed does give it to him. So then he concludes, Jesus concludes by saying that this, these interesting words, the Sabbath was made for people, not the other way around. And that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And there's no response reported. You don't hear what the disciples, sorry, the Pharisees say in response. But imagine there was a lot of muttering amongst these elite religious professionals. So then we get to the next story. And these two are very much in the same kind of uh, area of, of talking about the Sabbath because it takes place in a synagogue, possibly in Capernaum again, uh, and it's on the Sabbath. And Jesus is clearly being watched for further evidence of law-breaking, and me, perhaps in particular Sabbath-breaking. I'm sure there was quite a few representatives of the Pharisees there keeping an eye on him. And sure enough, plenty of evidence is given. In full view of the Pharisees, Jesus actually heals a man right there in front of their faces. So what is happening? What's the point of all this? Let's think about this. What is Jesus trying to do here? Well, the first thing he is doing, Jesus is bringing his community, this community, to a point of crisis. A point of crisis and decision. You know, after the grain incident, he got a little, little warning, little shots fired over his bow, right? Why are your disciples doing what's unlawful? That story, you know, passes away. Jesus could have kept a low profile for a while. It might have been wise to do so. But instead, he goes, literally goes to the very place where these people rule. And he goes to the synagogue. And there's definitely, it's the place where they're definitely going to be present with their eyes to see what he does. And he probably knows that they're looking for more opportunities. And he deliberately sets up a challenge to their way of thinking by himself initiating. The man doesn't come forward asking to be healed. He initiates the healing of this man on the Sabbath day there in the synagogue. And if he simply wanted to heal the man, he could surely have waited till after sundown. And the, the Sabbath laws at that time said, if something is crucial and it's a matter of life and death, you're able to help the person. But if it can wait at all, don't have anything to do with anything, making people better on the Sabbath. It was very complicated, but it could have waited. The man's arm, his hand could have waited, but that wasn't the point. Jesus was trying to bring them to a point of crisis and decision. The wrong thinking of these power brokers of religion in that day was preventing the people from enjoying the Sabbath as God had intended it to be. So Jesus will not leave this alone because it's too important. So he pushes the point with determination and courage. He brings things to a point of crisis, exposing the injustice of society in a way where people are forced to make a decision. And as I was reading this, it reminded me very strongly of a time in the history of America, the civil, civil rights movement, where a very similar thing happened. I'm sure you know the story. There are many other people, but most people know the story somewhat of Rosa Parks. Uh, and she was someone who disobeyed the bus laws of where white people and black people could sit on a bus. And I was interested, I was wondering, was, was her initial 
um, uh, decision to do this? Was it uh, um, you know, just a passing moment that, that turned into something or was it intentional on her part? And actually in a book that she uh, wrote, in 1992, Rosa Parks, My Story, it's called. Here's what she wrote. She said, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired. That isn't true. I was not tired physically or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old then. I was 42. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. And apparently, uh, she was actually seated in the appropriate section of the bus, but the white section was filled. And so the bus driver asked her to move from her seat and stand in order to give up a seat for a white person. And she would not get up. Martin Luther King Jr. Was a, kind of came in, uh, in that wake and the concept of nonviolent protest, it's really that you show up with your body, even though it is dangerous, to expose the injustices of the day in a way that causes people to have a crisis and also to have to make a decision as to what do they stand for. And, and, and Martin Luther King Jr. had incredible challenges. If you've read the letter from Birmingham jail, he talks about people who say, hey, don't be such, so making such a fuss. This will just all work itself out. And, you know, he in somewhat, uh, some ways believed that, um, that justice was, uh, you know, eventually going to come. The kingdom of God would eventually bring justice. Uh, he often quoted uh, this, this, this saying, which says the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. But he believed it needed human initiatives. Someone, somewhere, a person of righteousness had to stand up for a cause against a cause that was unjust and put their body in harm's way in order to expose, to bring people into a place of crisis and decision. Uh, and, and in some way, this is exactly kind of what Jesus is doing. Uh, so what, is he, what else is he doing here? He is shining a spotlight on the hearts of these men. He's not willing that they would uh, be stuck in their self-righteousness and their power, even as much as he's not willing that those who are the tax collectors and sinners would be stuck in their marginalization or their shame or their guilt. He's trying to free them from their uh, self-centeredness. Uh, and so he's shining a spotlight into their hearts. What is really interesting about the way he does this is that he specifically uses certain words as these people are thinking certain thoughts. Here's how it goes. Jesus asked them if it's lawful to save life or to kill. He says that. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to kill? Right as these men's hearts and minds are being populated by thoughts of murdering Jesus. That is profound. This is a revelation of a deep, deep, deep hypocrisy because surely they would say in front of all the people, of course it's good to save life, but, but in their hearts and their minds, they are thinking of killing Jesus, of murdering him. And that's the kind of kingdom Jesus brings. It's one that exposes our hearts and, 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 and goes beyond the surface of our actions and behaviors that may look good to someone on the outside, but he sees right through all of that to the hearts uh, that we truly have. And the Sermon on the Mount, he talked often about that. He would say, you have heard it said... You shall not kill, for example. But I tell you, if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder. He exposes these men. 
Jesus also exposes the extent to which they are willing to go to protect themselves. And it's actually found in this interesting comment that they go not just to decide that they must kill Jesus, but they go and make an alliance somewhat with the Herodians. And they were not natural allies. The Herodians were people who supported and followed Herod. And Herod was very much in league with the Romans and not particularly a friend of, of pious Jewish religion at the time. But such was their mutual hatred for Jesus, this upsetter of the status quo, uh, because he's exposing the rotten heart of these power structures that it leads them to collaborate, to rid their land of his presence. What else is Jesus doing? Well, it's clear, this is clear, that Jesus is taking back his authority over the relationship between God and human beings. This is something that had been entrusted to these religious people as stewards and they had made a big mess of it. Amazing words in chapter two, verses 27 and 28. Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. He's talking about the Sabbath. Think about in creation, People were made before the Sabbath was given. The Sabbath was given to human beings as a gift. It's a gift to people. It was a means of ensuring that every single period of seven days, human beings would enter into rest as a gift from God, an opportunity to commune with one another and with God. And this was supposed to be for all people even to the slave, and actually even extending to the land, that the land would rest, the animals would rest. And the whole purpose was that people would then get to celebrate and enjoy just the goodness of God. The goodness of God. God all through that time was proclaimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Now Jesus takes that title for himself. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And as he surveys the hearts of these religious leaders who were entrusted with this message and this purpose to shepherd the people with compassion and love so that they would be enjoying these times of celebration and joy with God and they have built it for their own benefit. When he looks and surveys them, he is so angry. And it is the righteous anger of God that he is expressing at these people who would build, instead of opening up the ways of people to come to God and enjoy his presence, would build obstacles that would prevent them from communing with him as he intended. And it's really found in the details of these stories here. You may not think there's much comparison between the grain and the man with the withered hand, but think about this. Think about creation that God set things into motion and the plants, they grow from the ground and, and, and the rain waters them and in the secret places of the earth, the seeds germinate and they spring up in shoots and then the sun eventually starts to ripen these plants and it's food both for pleasure and for nutrition and nourishment and is a good gift to be enjoyed. And when religion gets in the way of a simple enjoyment of the simple good gifts of God, then something's gone wrong. 
And this man who, is, who has a withered hand and he's in the synagogue trying his best to connect and seek God. And this religion is, is said to prevent him from experiencing the full healing and flourishing and joy and community of fellowship that God brings on this particularly special day. Something has gone wrong and Jesus is not willing to leave it alone, even though it's ultimately going to cost him his life and it is a price he's willing to take to take away just not just the separation in that day but for all people for all times the separation that stands between people and, and their enjoyment fully of a God who gives them life so what's what application might we make from this how can we understand this for now well I'm talking especially to those of us who are Christians and who are people who seek to follow God, who assemble in this thing we call church. And the first thing is this, it is challenging enough to come to Jesus. It is so challenging often for people to come from their place of hurt or shame, whatever it might be, to come to Jesus without religion making it harder. And religion so often is the very thing that makes it so difficult as we see here. And we have to take this seriously Think about the man with the withered hand. You know, this is what Jesus, so he's just minding his own business. He doesn't realize that Jesus is going to do this thing. And the healing is wonderful, but, it's, but he doesn't realize he's, he's actually about to be swept up into the, uh, the priorities and the mission of God through Christ. But it's what Jesus says to him. He says, stand up in front of everyone and stretch out your hand. That's got to be difficult. I imagine that man had been hiding his deformity for years under his clothing, probably. His own community would most likely view his deformity, and possibly he would too, as an evidence and a badge of sin. I must have done something wrong. Whereas Jesus sees it as a chance to glorify God and further a sign, an evidence of the saving, freeing, life-giving power of the kingdom that he is bringing and that he brings but it's very hard. Imagine his thoughts, me in front of everyone, hold this out. People in our community, I've got all kinds of issues that are already challenging enough. Issues of shame or things that have been done to them, trauma. And I tell you, our religion is often the last thing they need and the greatest obstacle to them coming they need Jesus. And when we have all the orthodoxy and all the rules and we, we externally expect others to fall into, follow these things and show that they're, they're at least trying to do the right thing in our eyes, we, we diminish the ability of people to simply come as they are to the one who heals, who knows them, loves them, heals them, calls them, and is doing a perfectly good job of, of, of having a conversation with them. We need to get out of the way and let God... Meet them, not be like these Pharisees. So we need to be extremely serious about our openness to Jesus' right. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You think you're stewards and, and uh, arbiters of all of this? You're not. He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm the one who decides what should happen. And you don't understand what this is all about. We have to be careful about the ways in which our religion may hinder people 
against what Christ would do from an honest journey with the God who made them and loves them. Now here's the thing. If our religion or your religion prevents you from doing whatever good it is in your power to do for some particular person or group of persons, then there is something wrong with your religion. So what do we do? Well, we take seriously what Jesus says. That's why we're doing Mark. That's why we're in the gospel of Mark for these very things, these very moments of of, of crisis and decision because we're right there with the Pharisees. I know I am. I end up being a holiness of God apologist trying to make sure I'm always protecting God's holiness against the people that he's trying to reach and it just doesn't work. Later in Mark, Chapter eight, Jesus is gonna say this. The story goes this way. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. There was another debate. Later on, there's gonna be more of these controversies and it's it's not gonna go well for Jesus as we know. But it says, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? That's a great question. What is the priority here? Because religious people are really good at adding all kinds of laws and regulations, do's and don'ts that are just exhausting and burdensome for anyone to even contemplate as they think about God. And here's what Jesus said. The most important one answer Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. We got to keep it simple. You know, we're talking at Charter Oak, uh, the Bible study that we're doing with some folks from Charter Oak and some friends from New Song, and we're doing it online still at the moment. We are excited and hopeful to get back in person again as soon as we can. But we were talking about another encounter in Matthew with the Pharisees and with Jesus and, and his, how, how he was so disturbed by the quality of, of that world at that point and and what it was doing to the people that he loved Uh, and so we ended up talking about this and and it was actually one of our uh, people uh, who attend uh, Terry Stratz actually we're asking what's the solution she said well we need to keep it simple and we need to love God seek to love God and love our neighbor you know that seems too simple perhaps but it is sufficient I think it's enough and and we're talking about what is the alternative the alternative really is to try and control and manipulate and fix people and, and that's just not what we were ever meant to be doing. We're simply called to, to love people and love God, receive God's love and love others. You know, it's really this, this uh, leads us to a picture of the kingdom now and how we live together. And that's what our command is called to do. And it's perfectly enough to be going on with. So we've had these controversy stories, five stories. And they're really well uh, structured as we see seen. Mark sets it up this way and he's teaching us about the kingdom and teaching us about who Jesus is, the central character of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And we learn from the, how people were offended. <clears throat> it's often interesting to see what people are offended by. You can discover maybe some truth there. And then uh, Jesus' answer, we learn more about who he is. So these uh, five stories, the last one, two in one. But the first one was the paralyzed man who was forgiven and healed. First thing Jesus says, you're forgiven. But then he healed him. And, and that connection between forgiveness and healing that is so necessary for us. And the, the offense was this, who is this man? He's speaking blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus says, the Lord, uh, the son of man, 
has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is the one who can forgive us. Second one, he has dinner with sinners and tax collectors and they're very offended. They say, why does he eat with these sinners? Why does he associate with these people? He's a holy man. Why is he with these people? And Jesus says, I came to call all those who need healing. These are my people. These are my people, not the righteous ones, not the ones who think they've got it all together, but the ones who truly know that they don't. Third thing, the question of fasting last week. Why did Jesus' disciples not fast? And he says, because the kingdom has come. And the time for waiting in sorrow and longing and hope, perhaps of an expectation that something might change, has passed and I am with you, so rejoice. The king has come. And then this last one, he's, he's talking about the crushing weight of religion. They say, why are you breaking our Sabbath? Our Sabbath, you are breaking it. And Jesus says, I am the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. And I have to come to restore to human beings this relationship and what has been lost. And how do the religious leaders respond? It says in the text that they, in this crisis and this decision, they are silent before his authority. There's nothing they can say to discount what he is doing. So they respond with a decision to take his life. And I think their silence begs the question, how do we respond? We are called. How do we respond to this? How do we orient ourselves to this good news? Because I'm certain that he is calling you by name. I'm confident in it. This is how it works. He is in this world and he is calling you. And those who seek will find. Those who ask will receive. Those who knock, the door will be open to them. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, chance to continue in your word. And we simply ask that you would continue to bear with us in all of our behavior and thinking and thank you that you do that your grace is sufficient your love for us is complete and unconditional and may we respond with simple affirmations to say yes i need you here is my life thank you if we ask it in jesus name amen <clears throat> just want to say to close uh, you should have received uh, some information about our plans we're excited about uh, this year, uh, and of course we are, as we've said many times, and if you've read the letter, it's explained to you there that we are really seeking to reap uh, the change agents of these times. We don't want to just simply go back to whatever was normal before. We want to let God change us, even in this passage. And he does that every day. Jesus will always call us to challenge our current perception and step into something that he is leading us into, which is a sense of newness, freshness, and life and vitality, and also an ability to be who he wants us to be to connect with the community in which he has purposely placed us. So let's be praying for that. Um, read that letter if you haven't yet, if you've received it. If you're interested in hearing about this, uh, please let us know. You can contact us uh, through the website and let us know you're interested in the process that we're undergoing to try and understand how God wants us to respond to our current times. Um, but if you're, if you're a regular tender, or you're someone who feels very much that you're part of this ministry and this mission, then make sure you attend to that and thank you in advance for that. God bless you and keep you.